This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Andrea Griffin. The cool thing about Andrea, her husband is also on this season, and they both have such fabulous stories to tell that I had to make sure that all of you heard from both of them. Andrea, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I am happy to hear that. Andrea, before we get started, I want to maybe warn the listeners that you have a very traumatic story to share, but it is a story of resiliency and overcoming the worst of what life can offer you. And that's why I want you here on this podcast, because you have done such an incredible amount of work to heal from your traumatic childhood. You have an incredible family and you love this country. These are all such pivotal things for everyone to hear that I had to have you come on. Your husband, Ray said, you have to have Andrea on. You have to. She is the bravest, most courageous person I know. And I applaud you for coming on Now, when we begin your story, I don't know how much you want to reveal. That's totally up to you. But let's start with your childhood, if that's okay. I'm an open book. I tell it because I want people to know life is survivable. So my story is that I am a survivor of child pornography and sexual abuse, domestic violence, physical abuse. You name it, and it happened in my childhood. Uh, 21, after an attempt I had made on my life, I went to therapy, and that therapist unethically told me there wasn't anything to do for me. She was like, I don't know what to do for you people. Like, you don't make it till you're 30. And I remember sitting in that session and having this woman telling me that there's no hope, there's no hope for you. And I just thought, okay well, then I'm going to do this. And that wasn't the only moment in my life that I had. I had had other pivotal moments, as you call them, where someone reinforces what's this fire deep within me. And that moment led me to my next moment, which led me to my next moment. That one was powerful for me because one of the things I I just wanted to sleep, that was really why I'd made the attempt. Like I just, the burden is so hard to carry. And to have her tell me that it couldn't be done. Cause I was like, I don't want to live like this. I'm like, there's gotta be something out there. She was like, people like you die. You just don't make it. So I was like, oh, okay. Well then I'll show you how we make it. How early were you when the abuse started? And was this from your parents or someone within the family or friend? My earliest memory is three years old. And it was my mother's brother who was a returned missionary for our church. And 
he was my babysitter and I was his victim. And I actually did not remember that it was child pornography. I knew that I was sexually abused by him. When I was nine, I tried to tell my mom what was happening. And because she's a narcissist with borderline personality disorder, um, she just was like, well, if you hated it that much, you would have told me, but apparently you didn't hate it. So she didn't do anything about it. And then my father was my other abuser. He sexually abused me from the time I was 13 until I was 15, almost 15. Both sides. Yes. So generationally speaking, my mother's family has incest, sexual abuse, narcissism, physical abuse, lots of physical abuse. Um, And then my father's side, same thing. And it goes back generations. When I was going through therapy, And one of the things that happens in therapy is you kind of go on this quest. You got to know the why, why did it happen? Well, why me, why my family, what was going on and in interviewing more or less my family and finding out, I mean, my grandmother abused my father who abused me, but she was abused by her father. And I don't know if he was abused by anyone. She doesn't know that either. My mother was abused by her mother who was abused by her father. So, I mean, we're talking generational abuse. And I, I do remember as a young woman thinking, I'm not going to do this to my children. I knew that. Um, I knew, and I, I don't think I could define that. I don't think I could say, I'm going to go break a cycle. I just knew that it was going to end with me. I remember when I was six, my mom's, she loved to spank us with a belt. Um, and my dad loved to hit us with a, this wooden stick. I think it, I mean, it may it be, may have been like a two by two kind of thing. And he wrapped electric tape around it to make the handle. And that's what they used to beat us basically. And I remember one time she, when she was spanking me and beating me ultimately. And I remember looking at her and saying, moms aren't supposed to hit their kids, which only made her hit me harder. But I knew my whole life, I knew that that's it. It wasn't supposed to be that way. You mentioned siblings. How many siblings do you have? I am the oldest of four. And did they experience this abuse as well? Or was it all taken out on you? I got most of it. It happens in abused families. There's usually a black sheep that gets most of the abuse. I also was not compliant. I challenged them. I was not very good at being submissive. Um, I just didn't see the point, quite frankly, which meant that I got a lot more because I didn't buy into the whole thing. And I challenged them a lot. And abusers don't like to be challenged. Did people outside the family suspect anything? Did anyone ask? Um, I remember as a little girl telling people the things that happened And I remember being told that maybe I misunderstood, you know, that my mom really loved me. When I was 14, I went to the abuse with my dad had changed, say sexual abuse. And I didn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Like I was done. And I tried to tell my mom one morning and um, she looked at me and said, oh, he probably thought it was me. And I remember in that moment thinking, oh my gosh, you've known all along. And then when I was leaving for school, we were standing on the front porch and she was like, 
it didn't happen. I don't care what you say, Andrea, none of it happened. And so I went to school that day and I told every single person and bless their hearts. I am telling other 14 and 15 year old girls. And I, to this day, hope that the Lord has in some way extended a hand of mercy and not allowed them to carry that burden. I told adults, I told everyone that would listen because I knew my mother wasn't going to protect me. And my father ended up arrested and DCFS was called. But my mom told me that if I told them what was happening in our home, that she would make me disappear, which I knew exactly what that meant. You told adults then? I told adults. And most of them didn't my believe? Friends, my friends' moms were heroic. They were incredible women, and I'm grateful for them. They, some, I don't know if some of them, all of them, someone called DCFS. At school, though, I actually had a teacher pull me, or a couple of teachers, pull me aside, and they told me that the things that I was telling people around this school was scaring other people and that I needed to stop um, making up stories or, you know, basically I needed to stop talking. I'm not really good at doing that either. So I didn't. Your dad gets arrested. DCFS comes and you say what then? Never mind. I don't don't say a word. I'm 14. I actually think my mom has the case. I mean, my dad's violent by this point, the abuse in our home, they were very volatile. I mean, I remember one time as a little girl, my mom looking at me in the car and saying, stop breathing because my breathing was bugging her. So I remember holding my breath all the way home in really shallow breathing because my breathing was bugging my mother. Food was her tool of manipulation. She would withhold food. She would like to tell us when we were hungry and then to tell us when we were full. And so by the time I'm 14, I actually believe my mother has the capability to make me disappear. So I don't say a word to DCFS. I just sat there. Well, what happens after they come and leave? Does it get worse because you called someone? Does it remain the same? I don't know. I, yes, it does get worse, but I don't think it's because I called someone. I think it's because it's the nature of abuse. I mean, you can, every level of abuse is just more control. It's a monster that cannot be fed. My dad got more violent. My mom became more narcissistic. I mean, she used to lock me. When I would go to hang out with friends, she would lock our house, turn off the lights. So when I would come home, because she set our curfew at nine and I, we, I didn't do a very good job of obeying that either. Um, so we'd had to pound on the door to, you know, get her to let us in. Um, my dad was very physically violent. The police started coming, but at this time in 90 three and 94 and 95, there are not laws in place that the police can press charges. It was, you know, they would ask my mom, do you want to press charges? And she always said, no, he would hold us at gunpoint, waving the guns around like some kind of maniac. Just give me a reason to kill you. It was super dramatic. And that's actually how I always felt about it. I mean, I was terrified inside and it was this weird, I knew he probably could kill us. But I remember one day in particular where I was like, so are you going to do this or what? Cause I, I, I'm done. We're tired. Yeah. I just, I need to go do homework. It was just so, it's so dramatic all the time and always fear and yeah, nonsense. 
Did your mom live in fear of your father? No, she provoked him. She liked to provoke him. And it was a very weird thing to watch because it was almost as if she did things just to make him angry. And, but she did the same thing to us. I mean, you couldn't walk across the living room without her interrogating you and then verbally assaulting you. And in fact, in therapy, it was my mother and her narcissistic tendencies that I had to do the most work on. You have abuse then coming at you from all sides. Mm -hmm. What is that like for a little girl getting up and going to school, performing in school, having friends? How does that affect you? I was really, really insecure. Um, I was definitely codependent on a critical level in that you know, you use your parents to, they're, they're supposed to be the safety, right? Like we children stand on the confidence that their parents have in them and they go out into the world and they take risks and they, they try new things. I did not do that. I was bullied a lot in school. I was really awkward. Um, I didn't know how to talk to people. I was good at acting. People would tell me that I was really mature for my age. And I remember feeling like, yes, I am. As an adult now, I just want to hug that little girl. I should never have been mature for my age. I should never have been able to talk to adults easier than my own peers. It was hard, but I didn't know it was hard, if that makes any sense. I thought it was my fault. I thought it was my fault that I was awkward. I thought it was my fault that I, I didn't really know how to do the friendship thing. I thought it was my fault that I struggled with my grades in high school worst student ever. But now I look back every single night, every day was a volatile, um, violent eruption of something. My mother was punishing me for my mere existence almost daily. My goal every day was to never actually see her. That's what I wanted. I didn't want to see my mom. I got up, I got out of the house. School was a refuge while I still struggled there. It was a refuge. One of the things that I think is absolutely amazing about myself, and I'm allowed to toot my own horn, you're allowed, is that I still tried things. I did try athletics. I did want to be good, but I was struggling with so much emotional darkness that trying to push myself physically was actually really hard, but I didn't know why. I didn't know why I quit so easy and I beat myself up for it so much. And my mom did this thing in high school where she didn't want me in athletics. And so she made me drop the class. So I had to be in band. Um, but at least I got to do band. And then later I tried out for color guard is what we would probably call it out here in Utah. Um, and then my senior year, I was captain. And those moments were one of those pivotal moments I talked about, right? Like the opportunity to lead. I needed that small school, 400 kids total in a high school from ninth to 12th grade, um, which ended up being a blessing. I was in a strong Christian community. And while I had severely inappropriate behaviors, I was hypersexual. Um, I wanted to break rules. Like it, 
I, but I know now it's because I was challenging everything. I wanted to revolt against this box that the abuse was trying to put me in. So I did, I got in trouble a lot. I broke a lot of rules and I don't know what people saw from the outside, but when I was 18, I left, I graduated May 26th, June 26th. I left on an airplane for Utah and that, oh, that first year of living on my own, bless my love and heart. I moved in with a cousin who her mother hated me. They were dysfunctional. Um, and which side of the family was this on? My mother's side. Oh boy. Um, my cousin and I had a good relationship, but the mother hated me. I'm this cute Southern thing that moves to Utah and suddenly all the boys like me, which instead of, you know, teaching me how to manage that, I get punished for it. Um, so I end up, she kicked me out of this situation. And I don't have parents who actually are going to provide. So I moved into government subsidized housing with a complete stranger that I did not know at 18 years old. How did that work? How do you move in with a stranger? You meet them in ZCMI at a makeup counter. ZCMI. And they make comments like, yeah, you know, my cousin was talking to her. And then she was talking about, she lived up in American Fork and she was going to be moving down there. And she found this apartment. And so then my cousin's like, hey, do you want a roommate? And the next thing I know, I have an apartment in government subsidized housing. We lived on the third floor of this apartment building. It was not until I was an adult with children that I realized that every night when I walked home at midnight from my job at Pizza Hut on Main Street, that this blue light that I walked past where this, these people were all sitting outside their apartment, they always had this blue light in a spoon. It did not hit me until I don't even know how many years later, they were smoking crack. I'm walking past this at 1230, one o'clock in the morning as an 18 year old girl and the girl who rented the apartment, she was hardly ever there because she always went home to American Fork. So I'm in this apartment by myself at 18 years old. And in the meantime, my father would tell, call me to tell me how he was going to kill my mom. And I would call my mom just trying to get her to love me only to have her continue to tell me what an awful human I was and how much she hated me. And I just, I am amazed that I survived. Did you ever turn to alcohol or drugs yourself? I did. I, the first time I drank, I was 18 years old. And it, I remember it was a whole group of people and they all felt because like, we were all underage. And I remember they got it from this guy at a bar there in St. George and everyone was super rebellious. And I remember the first hard liquor I had, I don't even remember what it was. And it relaxed me and everybody else is goofing off and they're partying. And I sat on a couch and I was like, I'm going to sleep tonight. Well, isn't that why people who have PTS, PTSD, whatever you want to call it, traumatic, traumatic backgrounds, they do that because it numbs the pain. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'll, I'll, I didn't know about alcohol. I'd never really, other than, you know, the D.A.R.E. program, you know, don't drink and do drugs. Yeah. Um, I didn't know why we should even avoid alcohol. All I know is that I took my first drink and I was like, holy crap, I can sleep. And so I didn't in, 
necessarily go out and buy alcohol ever. It was like this weird line I never crossed, but I definitely allowed myself to participate because I needed to be numb. And that whole year, um, is just a blur. It's my dad telling me how he's going to kill me and my mom. It's my mom telling me what an awful human I was. And the thing is at 18 and a lot of abuse victims feel this way. Like you don't know that you can hang up the phone. You call I was about to ask, why are you calling Andrea? Why am I calling? Um, but I didn't know. I didn't know that I, I didn't have to call. I didn't know that I could not answer the phone, that I could hang up. Um, and then somewhere, I think it was April or May, um, I made an attempt on my life and a roommate found me. And the thing is, is I actually, it was the kind of attempt that I didn't even know what I was doing. All I knew is like, I'd, I'd hit this wall and I, I needed just to bleed. Like, I don't know how to describe it. I just needed, I cut my wrist. You but cut your was, wrist. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't do it to die. That's the thing. I it's remember, like those cutting things that are going on now where you need to feel the pain or you need to feel something. Is that what it actually, is? It didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. I just Why? needed to bleed. I don't know. I think that I was that dead inside, but I, I, it didn't hurt. It actually watching myself bleed was relief. That's where I was mentally. It was bad. Why is that? Is that because if someone's going to hurt you and you're doing it, there's power in that? Or I try to, I don't understand it, that at all. The thing is, is I remember sitting in my bathroom and I remember using the razor and I was so calm. Like I didn't feel rushed. I didn't feel like I had to hide. I just felt like either this pressure had built up in my body and I just needed to break the pressure. And that if I just could bleed, I would bleed it out. I remember thinking that. And then my roommate found all, because I ended up wrapping my own wrist. Um, and she found all of my stuff. They got me into the hospital. And then they, with a, another friend of mine, worked together with getting a hold of my grandfather, who they didn't know at the time was just as much a part. I mean, he was, but they did save my life in that getting me on an airplane and sending me to Texas led me to what would be a huge shift in my life. So what I was could, in Texas? Well, home, first of all. Okay. That's where um, you were from. Yes. Um, so they send me home and, you know, my grandpa picks me up, takes me to my mom's. I actually don't remember anything my mom said to me. I was so dead inside. Like I, I can't even describe, there was no emotion. It was all gone. I had completely surrendered to, I, I have to go basically. Like I just, I didn't want to go, but I did, didn't feel like there was anything else. And I remember, I don't remember what led to it. I don't remember why. I just remember I called this woman, her name is Lisa, grew up or we didn't, we grew up, we lived there for two years across the street from her family. Her mom was the secretary, um, at the high school. Well, I think for the whole school district, but mind you, our school district fit on one plot of land. Um, <laughs> and I remember calling her and asking her if she could take me to this hospital. It was a hospital 
that my mom had sent me to when I was 15. It was called Meadow Pines and it was a mental hospital. She sent me at 15 to control me. It was about controlling me. It wasn't about help, but what she didn't realize is that those six weeks would end up empowering me later in life when I go to therapy, because I would relearn a lot of the stuff that all those seeds had been planted in those six weeks. Um, and so I'm thinking, okay, I'll just go back there. It was it when I was there, I was safe. No one had access to me. No one could find me. That's my motivation for going to Meadow Pine. So I asked Lisa if she can take me. We go there, we interview, and this woman across from us is a, a clinical psychologist. And she says to me, you know, it's private pay and you have to provide money in the beginning and show that you can pay. I'm an 18 year old, 19 at this time, a 19 year old kid. And I don't I'm remember. sure it's not cheap. Well, no, I, it's private pay. It's yeah. A, yeah. Um, and I don't remember the rest of the conversation, but I do remember this moment where she looked at Lisa and she said, she won't make it 24 hours if she goes back to her mom. Is there any way you can take her in? And I was expecting Lisa to be like, no, I've got two kids. I can't do this. And I remember she looked at me and she said, okay. She took in this very broken, shattered 19 year old kid. The whole reason I'm sitting in that chair is because I've cut up my wrist, um, took her into her home. And I called my mom and I said, I'm going to be staying with Lisa. Can you bring me my stuff? And my mom in true fashion to herself pulls up, opens the trunk, takes all of my stuff and throws it out all over the street. I knew you were going to say that. And then told me that I I could not have access to my siblings and, you know, basically, I don't care if you live or die, which is such a dramatic thing to say. Do you know how your siblings were getting along at that time after you moved out? If the abuse had moved on to someone else or not really? So my, my dad left my senior year, but left is up for translation because he just always came back and the cops still had to be called. They like, didn't, they didn't know how not to be in this tumultuous, abusive thing. Um, so my mom moved into an apartment and my sister, bless her heart. She should be given sainthood, had to share a room with my mother as a teenager. So it's one thing to live in a home, but now she's actually having to share a room with my mother and it's still violent. My mom's still controlling. She's still very verbally abusive, destructive. Um, And so they're still living in it. Um, And it really, it didn't ever stop. I mean, my mom right now lives four tenths of a mile down the road from me. No, are you kidding me? Pure coincidence, the way life has unfolded, because we've lived in Boston and Tennessee and Ohio and in Pennsylvania, and then we did not move here until 2012, and then we did not move into this house until 2013, and it just happens to be up the road from my mom, but she won't have a relationship with me, and I don't want one with her, Um, but she's got eight grandkids up the road, and 
Would you I want would, your kids to have a relationship with her? No. I off and on throughout the years have allowed moments, but she's abusive. And it's interesting the things that my kids remember on the handful of times they've been around my mom. Um, the same kind of stuff, you know, don't chew, uh, don't. One of my kids was saying like she was, they were drinking water. My mom was commenting on how loud they were drinking water. And I was like, imagine that every day of your life. I cannot even believe that you live that close to her. Who moved there first, then you or her? So my mom moved to Utah in 2001 and she's kind of lived everywhere. Um, she tells, if you met my mom, you would love my mom. You would think that my mom has the most heroic story. You would hear about how she is a survivor, that she would tell you everything I've told you, but then she would also tell you that her oldest daughter, despite all of her efforts to love her and to take care of her, has continued to smear her name. You would love my mom's story. So close to her, do you see her? Yeah, I wave to her. I mean, we're not friends, but I don't hate her. I feel bad for her. Thank you to therapy and healings and miracles. I'm not, I don't have, I don't carry her baggage for her. I feel bad for her. She's got a fantastic daughter and we would have such a powerful story if she could own it. If she could say I sucked. And if she I, came to apologize to you and sincerely meant it, you would be able to say, I forgive you. I would know that Jesus is here on earth if she did that. Well, let's continue with your story. You move in with Lisa and what happens next? Um, I don't know that I was a good child for her. I mean, I'm a 19 year old dysfunctional human being. She gave me rules. That was one of the things that I needed. I think sometimes when it comes to abuse victims and other, we're like, well, but they've been abused. Nope. Boundaries protect people. They are necessary. And the best thing Lisa did for me was give me rules. But she's got a 19-year-old kid and she has two children, a two-year-old and a baby. And she had an aunt, Rita, who Rita will be sainted. She is Catholic and she has done so much good in her life. She takes in girls, girls who have um, unplanned pregnancies, girls like me who are broken, who just need a place to land. And she had asked Rita if Rita could, you know, she had anyone else coming into her house and she was like, well, no, I actually have an opening. And so Rita took me in and again, rules. I had rules. She was patient. She taught me there were consequences. She communicated effectively her feelings, which I just drank. Like it was it felt like something I wanted to go towards. Like, this is what I want. I, I want to be more like her. Um, I was horrible with finances, which is not uncommon for families. I also, my parents are really poor. That whole, you know, the government, someone else should take care of me kind of mentality mm -hmm. raised in that too, which unfortunately did not prepare me for the reality of being functional. So I didn't really know how to pay my bills. I didn't know how to spend my money better. All of these things. And Rita is teaching me these things and bless her heart. I mean, I can't even imagine how irresponsible I was and all the things I did not do right. 
but I lived with her for almost a year. Um, but my dad was stalking me. Um, yeah, super classy, right? Takes such bravery to stalk a 19 year old girl and threaten to kill him, but that's what he did. Um, and he's, it started getting bad to the point of him showing up in a parking lot and pointing a gun at me and being like, right then I could have killed you and no one would have known. So I moved to Utah in March of 1997, drove in a car with a young man I had never met before. He was a friend of a friend, right? All the things I should have been dead. I can't even tell you all the times I should just be dead because I go into apartments with people I don't know because when I moved to Utah, I moved in, there was a woman in our ward or a church congregation back in Texas. And, um, she sent me to her parents, but her parents didn't like me. That's because I wasn't, I didn't say all the right things. I'm not a culturally Mormon person that says all the, the right words. And so they had concerns translation. I didn't fit the design of a kind of person they wanted to house. Um, I wasn't modest by Mormon standards. Um, and I was mouthy, super mouthy, and it could be very insulting. It was kind of like my trademark. Um, but it was my way of keeping people away. Like I just insulted you and then you just didn't come anywhere near me. Um, so they kicked me out. I slept on people's couches, people. I don't know. I'm just sleeping on couches in different houses. And then I meet this girl and I move in with her parents and sleep in their house for a little bit. And then I move into someone else's house and I sleep on their couch for a little bit until this woman at one of my many jobs, because I was good at getting a job and then promptly getting fired. I was horrible. I did not know how to show up on time. Mind you, I've been raised with the mentality of they can't fire you just because you showed up late to work. And so I didn't understand the necessity of accountability. And so I got fired and I was mouthy. I always talk back to people. And at one of my jobs, um, this girl was like, oh, this apartment just opened up next to me. And I had met this guy and he stuck with me. I didn't scare him. So we signed the lease together and it was my apartment. And then a few months later, he started, he kind of started moving in which as unhealthy as it is on paper, I actually needed that. I needed him for the, for the place that he held in my life at the time. He was the most consistent thing in my life. I, I didn't hold a job as long as I held that relationship. And um, he was abusive. Like he wanted me really thin. Every time I ate food, are you going to eat that? Everything I wore are you going to wear that? He wanted me to wear makeup. Um, and so I changed a lot of who I was to fit him, but at the same time, he never went anywhere. He never physically hurt me. And I didn't see all of that other stuff as abuse. I just saw it as like, you know, it's what he wanted and being a people pleaser, I was willing to do that. And I'm still drinking at this point in time. And then I had an ectopic pregnancy that ruptured and nearly took my life. And one of those pivotal moments, I'm in recovery and the surgeon comes in and he makes everyone leave. And he's standing on the side of my bed and he was like, 
I could get in trouble for what I'm about to tell you, but I have to tell you. And he's holding on to that side of your bed. Yeah. And he's like, I can see he's shaking. And he said, I want you to know I saved your life today. You were dying on my table. And he said, while we were giving you your transfusion, the Lord told me to tell you that you're going the wrong way. When I came into the hospital, I passed out in the foyer area, whatever that is, before you even get to the ER. So they didn't know my name. They did not know who I was. They did not know I was internally bleeding. They had to do tests on an unconscious. Well, I was coming in and out of it. I do remember that female. How did you get to the hospital? I was at work. Remember, I felt like I'd been shot. And that's what I kept telling everyone. And I threw, I kept throwing up on the way to the hospital. And then the girl, oh my gosh, she drops me off. She walks me into the thing. She turns around. She's like, I have to go back to work. I can't stay with you. And that's pretty much the last thing I remember. And then I just passed out. Um, but they didn't know who I was until after surgery and I'm in recovery. And then that's when they get my name. Um, and so him telling me that the Lord is telling him that I am going the wrong way. And I remember thinking, oh crap, he knows who I am. Like this sudden realization that God knows me specifically. You matter to someone. I don't know. I don't know if I thought that, but I was like, God knows who I am. Okay. God's the big guy. And if the big guy knows me and he's telling me I'm going the wrong way and all the things are coming into perspective question, because there was a time in my life that I, I'm going to say I romanticized the idea of being married in the temple. And I romanticized it because I didn't, my foundation in Christ wasn't I don't even know if, I mean, I couldn't even define who I was, let alone understanding Christ's role in my life. And so it was more about, I wanted to get married and just go away. That's what I needed. I needed to get married and go away. Um, And so in this moment, everything's being called into perspective and what do I believe in God? Like all of these things, but the spirit was so strong when he said that, like it, it hit me. They get it. You know, the bugs life, you know, when suddenly it's like, it goes out. Yes. That's exactly what happened. And that began my journey of walking away from the relationship I had with this guy and starting to seek blessings. I remember one night where I was like, I wonder if I'm supposed to pray. So I just did a thank you prayer because, you know, I'm not worthy in my head. I'm not worthy. So I'll just, I'll just thank him. And then feeling like maybe I should read scripture. So I just opened them and I didn't really read because again, worthiness, we're not worthy to read the word of God. And then I got a blessing from someone. Um, and in it, the Lord said, he said the guy's name and that he was a distraction. The man who gave me the blessing didn't even know the guy. So I was like, okay, anyway, glaring sign. So I was working on leaving him and eventually he cheated on me and I left. And then a month later, I met Ray. Were you doing any therapy at this point? 
No, because the year before when I was 21 was another time I, I OD'd on Oxy. Here's the deal though. I wanted to sleep, really needed to sleep. And remember, I don't buy alcohol. I only go where it is. So I had Oxycontin because I had been in a horse accident and I said, I didn't take all of it. Um, so I was like, Oh, let's take this. That'll be great. And my dad is, he's got my phone number. I'm sure I gave it to him again, that obligatory thing of, I can fix the family. if I love everyone enough. Um, and he had called me to tell me he was coming to Utah to kill me and how he was going to kill me. And so I took a couple and it wasn't working. So I took a couple more. And then I think after that, your brain, that consciousness shuts down. And so now you're on subconscious. And because I was feeling pain, I'm not feeling pain, but I'm feeling emotional pain. So my brain's like, let's just keep taking the whole bottle. Again, um, a friend finds me. I had to have my stomach pumped and I was in ICU for a few days. They were really mean to me, PS. They were not nice at all. They were like, oh yeah, the girl who tried to take her life, she's in room 10. Okay. When you said you were wanting to go to sleep, were you wanting to go to sleep or were you wanting to go to sleep? I needed the pain to stop. I don't think I would have told you that I was taking my life. I needed the pain to stop. I needed the nightmares to go away. I had, and that's actually one of the things later when I go to therapy, that's when we found out I had was a victim of child pornography because I dreamed it over and over again. You couldn't remember it. My dream would dream it except in the, yeah. And in the dream, it was just violent and it was awful. Um, but that's how we figured it out. And my sister remembered, she was like, yeah, I remember. How did you not remember? But you repress these things. I mean, it's at that point at 21, it is what 17 years. And I have a feeling it actually went before that. Um, but I have an entire lifetime at this point of daily abuse on one scale or another, whether it's verbal, physical, sexual, 21 years of abuse and it's still going on. So I just, I needed, I needed the pain to stop. I never hated myself. I always liked me. I just didn't want to feel dark. You met Ray. How does that progress? Do you confide in him immediately? I went and think that you would. How does that oh, relationship? Did. You did. I did because I remember when I told him because he was beautiful and he's also a return missionary. And I'm like, I just need to tell him because when he finds out who I really am, he's going to leave me anyway. And so we'd been on a few dates, mind you, after the first, the guy I'd lived with after he was done, I had a heart to heart with God. And I was like, I'm going to get this figured out. I don't know how I'm going to get it figured out, but you and I were, we're going to get this. I'm going to do this. Um, I would try to go to church. It was lame. So I didn't really stay very long, um, but I, I wanted it. I just, I was trying to eat my elephant like nibbles. I wasn't even biting. I'm eating my elephant in like tiny, tiny nibbles. And I knew though, that the next guy that I was with, that there were, I was going to know who he was. When I meet Ray. Where did you meet him, by the way? <laughs> At Club Omni in Provo. Oh, okay. My roommates, my roommates were 18 and they wanted to go. I'm like, do you have any idea? I, 
at this point in my life, I've already been to bars. So going to an 18 year old and up and they were like, please, Andrea. So I was more, I went more just because they had just hatched from high school. I'm 22 and they were from up in Murray. They were like, just go with us. Cause we don't know where it is. And, and then I see Ray and I, I remember the moment I saw him and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, why can't I have a guy like that? He's beautiful. He's probably a returned missionary, probably loves his mom and is going to be a great husband. And then I ended up meeting him later that night. And it was one of those things where you exchange phone numbers, but it's weeks before you actually meet. And we have our first date where he doesn't remember my name. Um, and then we do a couple of other things together. And I remember he walked me out to my car one of the nights and I said, okay, I, I need to tell you some things about me. And so I unloaded on him and I was like, I've done this and I've done this and I was abused. And I mean, it was, it's a messy story and dude starts crying. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this. And I, I was like, so anyway, I'm really sorry that things didn't work out. And he looks at me, uh, he's like, uh, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I mean, it's okay. I get it. You know, cute Mormon boy come from pioneer stock, probably. And then you meet this and he's, his eyes are just like, he is sobbing. And he was like, you're so amazing. I'm, I'm sorry. You're going to need to say that again. He's like, I just, I can't believe you're sitting here in front of me. You're so amazing. I didn't, I didn't know what to do with that. No one's ever told me I was amazing. I mean, 22 years old. No one has said, Andrea, you're amazing. The things you have survived is incredible. And I was like, I really don't know what to do right now because see what you were supposed to do is just get out of my car and be like, peace out lady. And this is too home. much for me. Yeah. And instead you're sitting here and, and I, I don't know what to say back to you. And we talked and he said, well, I don't, I don't want to end things to you. I didn't, I, uh, I don't know. I hadn't planned. I hadn't planned them. Like I saw it in my head. He was going to be mortified at this disgustingness that I thought was myself, but he didn't. And then we just kept dating and then we got married and then we had a kid. And then I had, remember standing in front of, we had this glass sliding door. And I remember thinking I could just run out that door and I'd fall off the side of the balcony, you know, it'd be all be done. And then in that same moment, it's like my consciousness or somebody in there is like slaps me as like, do you, did you hear what you just thought? So I immediately called the hospital and I'm like, I think there's something wrong with me because I just had this thought, but it didn't really feel like me. And so they stayed on the phone with me and immediately got me into therapy and started working through that. And I remember at some point in that therapy, as we're working through things, realizing I'm going to do this. I'm going to work through this pile of freaking trash. I'm going to do this. And my Aspen, my oldest daughter, every day that I considered ending my life, because it's one thing to be surviving in the abuse. It's a whole nother thing 
to open up those closets and let things fall out and acknowledge them. These are emotions that never actually got felt that now you have to confront. And it's really, really hard. I don't even know that darkness fully describes just how dark it is. Like it's literally an abyss that feels like it's taking your soul. But my baby girl, I always felt like she looked at me like, no, you don't get to die today. I stayed alive because her spirit was so strong. She needed me. And then I did eventually go on medication and I had my second one and I met this incredible, I mean, we're up with partum depression again, PSD, all kinds of messiness. And I met this therapist who in many ways did save my life because I told her, I'm going to break this cycle in my therapy with my other doctor. Um, that was Dr. Mary Cohen was my first doctor. She's in Pennsylvania. Dr. Carol Moretz was my second therapist in Pennsylvania. And Dr. Cohen had taught me, she'd given me books and she had worked with me and I knew what I was doing. I was breaking a cycle. I had a label for it. And I told Dr. Moretz, I am going to break this cycle. And she was like, okay, so first of all, you should know it's an uphill battle, but it is doable. And if anyone's going to do it, it's usually the oldest. And she told me looking at everything that I had survived, she was like, people do not survive this. It's really hard. It's unheard of. She's like, I mean, I checked every single box. She's like, but if this is what you want, I'll do it with you. But you have to be willing to do the work. And I was. And she hung in there with me. And I remember one of her questions that I often share on social media, because I think it's an important thing in therapy. You know, I was talking about my mom and she said, how long do you want to let her treat you that way? That was the first time I ever realized that there was any kind of option. I was like, wait, hold up. What? Free space in your head. An option. I didn't know I had a choice. Wait, what? And that, I mean, dissecting that, unpacking that, whatever trendy word you want to use. I was like, wait, I have a choice. I don't have to call my mom. Like that felt like it busted everything wide open and I was empowered and I was like, let's dig, let's go. Like, I'll just go through and open all the closet doors. I'll dump all the jars over, spill everything. Let's do this. And that's not to say that, I mean, I've got nightmares. I've got panic attacks. I have flashbacks. It was hell, but I was on a mission in that hell. Why did you wait so long to do therapy after you met Ray? Mm. I don't know that it was an intentional thing. The first time I went to therapy, when I had made that attempt, when I was 21, um, that was the first time I realized that, I mean, I think my frontal lobe is beginning to develop And that other time. I I'm sure I hurt people, but I was not cognizant of it at 21. I realized I hurt people. And that was not my intention. And I didn't want to do that. 
And so in going to therapy, I just, I was like, it's messy. I don't want it to be messy. I don't want it to be dark. And then that therapist and her unethical high point is like, people are like, you don't survive this. You'll be dead before you're 30. Um, which actually worked against her, whatever her motives were, because it empowered me. And I was like, well, whatever, I'll survive this. I will get through this. Did you trust Ray immediately or did that take time? to trust that he had your best intentions, to trust that he loved you for who you are, for everything you had been through. Hmm. So that's a lot of different kind of trust. Um, my trust in him was that I knew he wouldn't physically hurt me. It's the same thing with the guy that I lived with. I trusted him that he, because he just kept showing up. He paid for my apartment. He bought me a car. He bought my food. He provided for me, which my parents did not do. I paid everything. They stole my money. I worked because they were lazy freaking butts. I made the money. They took it. So being with someone who provided for me and didn't ask anything from me, and he didn't require sex, he didn't require whatever. I was like, oh, okay. So I trusted that guy on that level. And then he betrayed me, right? By cheating on me but I never saw the whole, are you going to eat that as abuse? And then when I meet Ray, I'm feeling that similar way. He doesn't need me to be different. Who I am doesn't intimidate him. Um, in fact, I think he was slightly entertained by who I was because I just said stuff. I still do, but it's a little bit more tempered and a little less insulting, but he, he just was who he was. He wasn't affected by me. He lived in his own, his own circle and who I was didn't impact who he was. He just allowed me to be me. And so, yes, I trusted him in that aspect. I don't think that I, at that time in my life could actually comprehend what trust, like what he and I have now. I know I did not comprehend that at that time. I absolutely expected him to leave me at some point. I mean, this other guy had my parents, obviously. So I expected him to leave me. He never did. It was a little weird. I mean, even through all our years of marriage, through all of my years of therapy, I was like, oh yeah, he's going to leave any day now. And I think there even still is that, wait, he's still here. That's a little weird, but he just, guy just sticks around. But I trusted him enough that, when Ray is around, I can promise you my blood pressure is lower. Calming influence. Yeah. The thing is, I know at the end of the day, like when it comes to awareness, I am so much more aware than my husband. I love that man. And he could kill you because he's got those ninja skills. Right. And he's military and blah, blah, blah. But I am much more sensitive to everyone's energy and I pick up on things a lot faster than he does but I know that if somebody made any attempt on my life my husband would protect me when you had that ectopic pregnancy are you concerned that you're not going to be able to have a family I didn't think about that 
And what kind of relationship do you have with your siblings today? I love my sister. She does not give herself enough credit, first of all. Um, she often talks about how amazing I am. And I think, uh, hey, so anyway, we both lived there. We both survived it. I'm close with her. We talk almost every day. My brother, uh, I'm close with. Um, he, unfortunately, as a son of an abusive father, has a lot to work through. And... Amber and I had the opportunity to have our parents early on before it was as messy. So in our childhood, right, from zero to what may be 10, while it was abusive, it was not what my brothers got from their zero to 10 years. They're coming in when things are the most volatile, the most violent. And so they very much got the raw end of the deal. One of my brothers won't talk to me because I set a boundary with him. And so now apparently I'm abusive, which is totally fine because I know why he's the way he is. I mean, the things he witnessed at eight years old are my dad strangling me, throwing my mother, physically beating all of us. I did not see that at eight years old. I mean, he's using the board to spank us which it wasn't spanking. So they just kept hitting us basically until we couldn't walk. That's not a spanking. That's a beating, but they called it spanking. And so my brothers, they need Jesus as we say in the South. Where is your dad today? I actually hope he's dead, but that's probably not going to be a real thing in Texas. Probably he's a monster of a freaking human. I do wish ill on him. And for anyone who may be listening, that's like, oh, bless her heart. I can't hate people. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Men like that. Men who sexually abuse children. Men who attempt to kill their family, who make threats on their life. No, they don't deserve life, but it's fine. Because Jesus will take care of that one on the other side. That's for darn sure. But he's probably in Texas. How do you know how much to tell your children and at what age? When does that become appropriate or applicable? Details, I do not tell my children. Like this podcast, my children will not listen to this podcast. Probably even my adult children. I don't want them to know. Life will teach them at the appropriate times what really happens. My oldest daughter is going to criminology and there are a lot of things that she's finding out about the world. So when she asks, I answer. Um, my kids help me teach our women empowerment and self-defense courses. And I do share just the basic survivor of child pornography, sexual abuse, domestic and physical violence. That's all I ever say. Um, they do ask me questions and I answer those in a broad stroke, overgeneralized, just basic. Because they, I mean, they don't have grandparents, right? So they do have questions about where they are. Why does grandma live down the road and she doesn't want to talk to us? Well, because I won't pay her rent and because I have boundaries and she's not allowed to be mean or abusive to me or my children. 
you've been here long enough and my kids have had experiences where they've actually passed her in the grocery store and she acts like she doesn't know them. I can't, oh, it's Isn't that uncomfortable? No, because I've taught my kids, you are not the love that other people show you. That is so conditional. And what an awful way to live that we base how we see ourselves on other people's perceptions and receptions of us. So I mean, they just smile and they wave when we drive. If she's outside her house and we drive by, we honk and we wave. Completely bizarre. It is. I would think she would be so embarrassed that she'd get up and move somewhere far away. Well, no, because these people here, they love her story. Who are these people? Well, all of her neighbors, the basement she lives in. My mom never got an education. Even though my dad left in 1994, I believe. How was she provided for herself? On the goodwill of others. She's a victim and people love a good victim story and they love to empower the victim and they just want to be helpful, which is fine because it works for my mom. But she can't leave here because she's built this. And that's the thing about narcissism. In her mind, she is not wrong. I am. In her mind, she cannot believe that she has this daughter who has been so public about her abuse. Because I am. I'm very public. I talk about it on social media. Not in detail, but definitely I'm very open about it. Sharing the lessons that I've learned. And so from her perspective, she has been wronged. What would you maybe tell somebody listening who is a survivor of child abuse in one form or another or many forms and they're in really dark place and have not found that help. What do you want to tell them? I am sorry. I'm sorry that someone failed you, that you have been dealt something that you did not choose to be dealt. I am sorry for your darkness. I'm sorry for the emptiness, for the unanswered prayers, for the unanswered questions. This is survivable. I can tell you that because I did. I've done it. I can tell you that it is doable. The hardest part about it is that there are no answers. You don't get it back. The thing you have to decide is what do you want to do with this darkness? Are you ever mad at God that why did you allow this abuse to continue this long? Why wasn't help sent my way? Yes, I was. Are you still angry sometimes? No, not angry. Probably sad because, so I was angry. And then I had that near death experience where a doctor is like, so anyway, the Lord said you're going the wrong way. And I was like, wait, what? Which again, you're like, wait, he sees me, but he hated me. I'm going to have to reconcile that a little bit. And then I had a lot of experiences like that, where I should have died, but I didn't die. Trying not to acknowledge God's hand. Ultimately, when I chose to go through the temple with my husband. um, And then, so that was six months after we were married. And then six months later, we were sealed. But when I went through the temple for the first time, I showed up and I was like, I'm literally not worthy. Like 
don't you know? And I remember I sat down with some guy because I was like, I can't do this. And he was like, I'm sorry, what? And I was like, I'm not worthy. And then another guy walked up and he was like, I've got this. Do you not feel worthy or are you not worthy? And I broke and I was like, I'm not worthy. And I know that in that moment, God was like, just let the girl talk. Don't, don't be doing any preaching because she'll bolt. We'll lose her. And I just, I'm pouring out all of, you know, I'm like, I've, I've done this and I've done this. And he's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have a recommend. And I was like, right. And he's like, and how long has it been? And I was like, well, it's been a while, but I, you under, I'm bringing all of this baggage with me. Do you understand who I am? And he just asked me if I was just at least willing, are you willing to trust God? Are you willing to at least do this? And I needed to hear that it always needs to be my choice. I'm very possessive about that choice. You will not break my will. Um, That is almost to detriment. But asking me if I'm willing puts the power back in my hand. It gives me the choice. What do I want? And as I went through the process, the words that were said felt so personal to me. I now know that if anything, God wanted me to know that he was not happy. He knew. And that's what I felt that day. He didn't condone any of this. I was known and he had me. So I built on that foundation. Because of all this trauma, you have decided that you want to help others. How are you doing that? How do I hope that I'm doing that? So it's an interesting thing because one of the things I recognize is that experience and moments are really the things that teach people. We are all instruments. So I try to be an instrument by helping my husband with our women empowerment and self-defense courses. I teach women what I've learned about situational awareness, making eye contact, trusting my gut, setting boundaries. I teach emotional resilience courses at our school about setting boundaries and in general self-awareness. I'm going to school to become a marriage and family therapist because I want to be that instrument in people's lives and continuing to empower them and to help them begin to make those changes that they feel so deep inside them that they know they exist but they don't know where to start and I want to be a part of that journey for them. You touched on a little bit about the studio that you have. You and your husband have a jujitsu studio, correct? Yes. And that is where you teach all these courses. Yes. You know, I don't know. I spoke with someone this morning on another podcast episode, and I don't know because yours is really hard. I spoke with Kim Olson this morning. Do you know who Kim oh, is? She's my neighbor. Oh, really? Her. Okay. Anyway, we'll see you're in good company today. <laughs> I spoke with her and all of the trauma she's experienced in her life. You know, I've lost a couple of sisters to breast cancer. My mom died of colon cancer, but One of those things is that we were discussing 
you've been through all this trauma and it really sucked. <laughs> it did. And people ask me, well, would you go back and change this? And I always say I would because it was awful to go through it. But at the same time, those things that I went through, I am able to use those lessons to help others. I'm curious how you feel about that. I would not go back and change anything because I wouldn't know what I know. I don't want to be a person that doesn't understand what hell feels like because everyone goes through hell. I don't want a hell-free life. In fact, I've talked to my kids about this. The only thing I asked God was that they had a childhood free from hell, but that I understand the necessity of really hard things. I understand the necessity of trials, of tribulation, of obstacles, and they really are opportunities. Um, I don't want to relive it again but I wouldn't change it. This is my story and I love who I am. I, I was a freaking rock star as a child. I am just so impressed. I have never been to jail. I mean, I've been arrested, but I wasn't booked, but that's because I had a bench warrant. So their arrest is iffy at best. But while I did drink and I experimented with marijuana, I never ventured into hard drugs and I don't know how I never became any kind of an alcoholic. I think because there was this boundary mentally, right? I'm not going to buy the alcohol purchased to bring to my home. I bought it in restaurants, but not for my home. There was always this part of me that was going to make it. And I think that's my favorite part about my story and why I would never change it because I always tell my kids, when they're in the middle of being a teenager, I created willpower and determination, best of luck. And I, I love what my life has created. I love what I can teach people. And I want to go help people because of what I've been through. You have eight children. Am I yeah. right? Yes. Wow. You homeschool them? Up until high school. Yes. Up until high school. You also told me beforehand in a little synopsis that I asked you to put together for me that all of your children in one form or another have dyslexia. Yep. And my oldest daughter um, has Asperger's. Did you make that choice to homeschool because you knew of these things and you wanted to give them the best schooling possible and you thought you were the person to do that? Why did you choose to homeschool? My daughter, my oldest daughter was nine months old. We had lived down in Pennsylvania. We came back to Utah for some family, something or other. And we were at my husband's grandparents' house. His cousins, this group of five children, they're all playing the violin. They're articulate. They're creative. They make eye contact. And I ask the mother, my husband's aunt, and I'm like, this is fantastic freaking amazing children. I mean, they're, they own their space and I couldn't articulate that, but there was something incredible about them. And she was like, Oh, I've been homeschooling since, you know, so-and-so was whatever. And I was like, I'm sorry, what aren't those the people that like live on weird pieces of land and they always wear the same outfit every day. 
the ones who win the spelling bee every year, the national spelling bee. (laughs) And she laughed and she's like, oh my gosh, right. I thought that too. And we talked for hours that day and she told me books to read and being the proactive determined person I am, I went and bought all of them. And then I read all of them. And I was like, I, you just couldn't give me enough. I'm like, oh, this is, it's about empowerment. It's about inspiring. It's about a life of a love of learning throughout life. And I'm like, okay, done. Sold, sold to the lowest bidder. Um, and I got a lot of, what do you call it? Resentment? No. You know, my husband's parents were like, my grandchildren will not be homeschooled. And I was like, they're going to be the weirdos. Right. And I was like, well, you know, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but it's not up to you. Thanks for your opinion though. Um, and that's what I set out to do. And I believe that that was inspired because my oldest, you know, I didn't realize like she walked early. Um, and she actually talked early, but there were other things like as a toddler, she lined everything up and she only dumped things out to line them up. And, um, she had her own language. She didn't play well with others. She always ran off. I mean, she was fussy, but I don't know. I mean, she was my first kid. So I was like, it's pretty normal to me. Um, and it wasn't until she was eight years old. And mind you, we've been homeschooling this whole time. Ray was in basic training. I was pregnant with our fifth and she went from, she was always picky. She's picky about her food. It couldn't touch what color, blah, 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 texture. She could not wear a shirt with a tag to save her life. She would literally die. Like she just, it was over. I hate those tags. I can't believe sometimes there's still t-shirts with tags. But there was just so many sensitivities. But now as she's approaching eight, she's getting mean and angry. I thought she was bipolar. So I take her over to the University of Utah. um, And I'm like, fix it, Felix. I don't know what's wrong my kids broke um and we do this you know two hour whatever and I remember right at the beginning we're talking and then Aspen speaks in her little language and she looked at me the doctor she was like she has her own language I was like oh yeah uh, I was like oh this is either like absolutely terrible or like they're gonna take my kid from me like I couldn't <laughs> the outcome was gonna be bad and then she's talking to me about autism and the spectrum and then she's like you've ever heard of Asperger's and I was like are you serious I'm relieved because I have friends with kids that are on the spectrum but they don't talk all they do is squeal really high-pitched all the time and I'm like mine talks I can do this so went to some psychologist and learned a little bit more about it never put her on meds a day in her life we homeschooled and we got in there now if you met her you wouldn't even know she's in the military. She holds a full-time job. She's going to be, well, I mean, she's saving up for some big things in her life. She's a freaking rock star. What do you think you gave your children through homeschool that they were unable to get in the public school system? I don't rush them. There's not a deadline. If it takes you until you're eight or nine years old to read, it's going to be okay. I don't think that the public school system, it gets a bad rap because there are a lot of things broken. 
I don't think it's anything that society can't fix, but I think we kind of got spoiled for a long time. Our generation had a great public school experience. And so we've been really hands off, but we really need to get back in there. I think that most people in the public school system have good intentions. I don't think that every kid that's homeschooled, it's the best thing for them. What was the best for my children was my personal investment. I've probably failed them though. I'm sure there are things. Well, you mentioned Ray and basic training. We talked about this because of course I spoke with Ray a few weeks ago. I believe he said that he came home basically and said, Andrea, I'm joining. And you said, okay. So I was pregnant with my fifth. When I am pregnant, pregnant, I did not have eight children because pregnancy, one, that it looked good on me or two, that it came easy. I had eight C-sections. Everybody has a birth story that's in one way or another traumatic. And I was sick as a dog and I always had to go to the hospital to get IVs. So I am laying on a, on a couch at like nine or 10 o'clock at night, just staring, just thinking when I get up to go upstairs, I'm going to throw up. Like I, <laughs> I, I live that. on Fenergan for about six weeks in all of my pregnancies. I just sleep the whole day. Otherwise I'll throw up all day. I can either sleep or throw up. <laughs> yes. Um, and as I'm sitting there and I'm knowing that I'm going to have to go throw up to, in order to go to bed. And I have this, the clearest thought. If your husband joins the military and is gone for a few months, everything will be okay. It came and it went. With no inkling of what is to happen. Well, at this point, you know, he doesn't have a job. And I you're mean, on number five? We're on number five. And he has no job. Well, he has like little part-time jobs. But, you know, in 2008, when everyone lost their job. Yes. January of 2009. And I mean, he's middle management. No one wanted middle management. Um, they wanted low totem pole or high totem pole. And so, I mean, it just came and went and I forgot about it probably because I stood up to go throw up and then go to bed. And then the next day I'm sitting on the couch talking with a friend and he walks in and he throws this t-shirt at me. What if I joined the military? And I just looked at him and I was like, oh, okay. I remember he stopped dead in his tracks and he turns around and he goes, what did you say? I hung up with my friend and I told him about what had happened the night before. And I was like, you know, I like to live dangerously. Let's do this. When did he leave for basic? In March. Then I delivered a baby by myself. Don't worry. I hang that on his head all the time. I play that card over and over again. And how old was your oldest child at this time? Eight. You have four that are eight and under and went on the way. And he yes. goes to basic. Yes. And you're sick. Yes. How did well, you manage is, that? Just throw cheeses at people. Get a water bottle and squirt it at them. Get sure a box everyone's... of cereal and some milk and say, there you go. Yeah. I actually, that pregnancy, I ended up in the hospital a lot. I think it was stress, but I get sick in the beginning. So I'm sick till about 20 weeks. And then I get sick again at like 30 weeks. So my body's like, we'll just breathe in here for a couple of months. And then that's it. Um, except that time I was throwing up to the point of bleeding. Oh, I never got that bad. So I'm having to go to the hospital and they're having to put Zofran in me until my body will stop 
And then now I'm going into early labor. So I'm having these shots. So much fun. Arwen was the one that was born while he was gone. She came six, no, four weeks early. She came four weeks early. So when he got home, we had a six week old baby. The thing is, is that I actually, I don't have any good stories about any of our experience with the military. Those first few years, people are really mean. Who? People. What people? Um, what people are we talking about here, Andrea? Who's me? My neighbors. So one of the times that I had to be hospitalized, you know, the neighbors have to come and take care of my kids because I've been rushed off to the hospital. I can't drive myself. Uh, the Relief Society president calls me and says, people made me food. I cleaned their dishes. I took it back. Okay. I get a message from her, Andrea. The tradition here is that you make a dessert to say thank you. I'm sorry, what? She wanted me to bake people treats to say thank you for what they had done for me. So there was that moment. And then later in the pregnancy, like a couple of weeks before Arwen was born, um, I have ligaments laxity. So my ligaments get really loose and I started to get this hip thing. There's a name for it. I don't remember what it is, but my hip will try to dislocate. And it sends these shooting pains. So I can't bend over. I can walk. I can walk upstairs, downstairs. I can sit down and stand up, but I cannot bend over to pick up anything. So my floors are looking super exciting. The kids had spilled oatmeal in my pantry. I didn't want them trying to pull everything out of the bottom of my pantry to try to vacuum. My oldest is eight. I don't want my flour spilled. I do not want any more mess. So I call my visiting teacher. I need some help getting this vacuumed up. She calls the Relief Society president. Andreas put in another order for cleaning. So then I get a phone call. We're going to need you to pay for a cleaner. I just need someone to vacuum the bottom of my pantry. Andrea, you have needed a lot of help during this pregnancy and during your husband being gone to basic. So we're going to need you to get a cleaner. Are these still your neighbors today? No, no. That's really weird. I thought the whole point of doing things for others was you do it with no thought of reciprocation, right? Yeah, I thought that too. That's I probably really just read the wrong book. We must have read the same book. That's very strange. Well, and then the one of the bishops, when I got pregnant with my number six, showed up at my house to tell me with he was with the relief society president. This is a different one by now that I was an irresponsible parent for having another child. And he kicked one of the blocks that was on the floor. And he was like, your kids can't even pick up the mess that they've made. Why do you think you should have another child? You guys are awesome. Thankfully I'd already been raised by the devil. So I knew it when he showed up. And if I wanted your opinion, I'd give it to you and you can leave now. Pre-deployment training, I had delivered that number six, six weeks early, and she liked to stop breathing and to make her heart stop a lot. She had a lot of, they call them Brady's, which is really stressful as a parent. Um, she coded twice in NICU and she came home after a month in NICU. And then and Ray had been in pre-deployment training during that time. And then he left a week later. And then Ansley decided to stop breathing on me. So I had to rush her to the hospital. She has RSV. Ray is gone. 
that bishop reminded me that there would be no service while my husband was gone because military families are a drain on ward families. But it's fine. Be It ended up being fine because the Lord came through for me. And another family, this um, Jake South and his wife, Mindy, fantastic human beings, came and got my babies for me so I could stay and pick you with my other child. I had a little moment with that Relief Society president as she's screaming at me. I came home simply because remember, I had gone to the ER with a blue baby, been admitted to the hospital. I'm home to get contacts and toothbrush, basically. And she's standing in my bedroom screaming at me about how selfish I am and blah, blah, blah. That whole year, his entire deployment year was that way. I never had a bishop who was empathetic or even sympathetic. I never had one member in any way offer like actually be decent. Well, that's a lie. I did have one. His name's Chris Martin, him and his wife, Hillary. But again, more saints. Chris installed a dishwasher for me. We were renting a home. When we signed the lease, they said everything works. Then I find out that the dishwasher doesn't work. And then she's like, well, you homeschool, your kids can do the dishes. So I went and bought a $300 dishwasher at RC Willie and had it delivered thinking that maybe I could somehow do it myself. No, I cannot in fact install a dishwasher. So that neighbor, but they also, they have special needs kids. And so I think that they understand more personally what people are unwilling to do. How do you keep the faith when all around you, people that should be willing to help aren't? How do you not say, throw your hands up and say, I'm, I'm done with this? Well, I have said that before. So my relationship with my savior is, I don't know. I don't even have a word for it. So all those years of therapy that I did early on in 2002, Richard G. Scott gave a conference talk and he said halfway through first part, he's talking about repentance. And then he says, now to those of you who have been scarred by the ugly sin of abuse, I was like, yes, that's me. What are you saying? And then he goes on to talk about how the savior can remove the scars. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry, what? And I'm listening and I am consuming everything that he says. And he says, what I hear him say is I can be healed. I knelt at my bed that night, sobbing. I want that. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to get that, but I want that. Hours upon hours of therapy lots of nightmares. I mean, when I tell you that, when I realized that I had a choice and I opened up every cabinet door, I did. I wanted intense therapy. I was going to, I understood as reading my scriptures, reading conference talks, I was just going to have to give it all to him. And so I was ready. I gave it all to him and the Lord came through and he did heal me and it was sacred. And When I say that I know him, I do because he came to me. He healed me. He took those scars. After that night, I never had another nightmare. I have never had another panic attack. I have never had any of it. There is no darkness. 
because of him. So I owe everything that I am to him, not because it's some kind of enslaved thing, but because he's my friend. And so when people pull stunts like this, I know they do not serve in his name. They may flatter themselves that because of their callings, that they are something special, but I know they are not called of him. I am sure that Ray is very thankful for what you did on the home front, because when I spoke with him during his podcast, he enjoys the military so much, enjoys the people that he is able to associate with, the people that he has learned from. It really was a positive change for him all the while you're struggling at home but it was a big thing for him to do. I knew he was supposed to do it. And it's one of the things I tell women. People love to come to us and they're like, so I want to join the military. And the wives are always looking at me and they're like, I don't know. A husband cannot be successful in the military if they are not as a team. If that wife is not convicted, if she does not know that this is the path they are to take as a couple, it's not going to work. I knew it. God had revealed it to me. I knew it. He had my support. And he still does. And my daughter does. It was the same thing with my daughter. Her whole life, you're not joining the military. You're not joining the military. And then one day, not in a moment I was seeking. That's usually how my prayers come. It's not because I'm kneeling beside my bed. The only one that ever was, was my healing. That was the only time I was kneeling by my bed. And I do have an answer and I do have a sacred moment. The rest of all of my moments are me grocery shopping, driving, going for a walk. And then I get these answers. And it was that way with my daughter. She's going to join the military. It's fine. Jesus said, we're good. Okay. Now I understand that your son may join the military. Yes. And is that good for you? Are you all right with that? I'm going to stop arguing with God. (laughs) Well, you have gone through a great amount of trauma. You're dealing with all of this. But I also know, Andrea, that you and Ray are very patriotic. Utah has a very small, tight-knit, I don't want to say small, but it's a very tight-knit military and patriotic community. You are involved in a lot of that. That is how our paths have crossed. Where did this patriotism come from when you're dealing with all this? Can you point to somewhere that this started for you? I don't know that I have a moment. I have always loved America. I was raised in a home where one of my uncles was a cop, but my mom always hated cops. My mom was also racist. But that didn't make sense to me either because, you know, when I was little, she wouldn't let me talk to them. I was like, it doesn't make sense because I liked them, but she was telling me how awful they were. And I'm looking at her family and I'm like, have you met yours? No. So I don't, I wasn't raised in a patriotic family. One of the things that I often think about with regards to being an American, I left at 18 years old. I bought my own plane ticket. I left my state 
and I moved to another state. And I have been free to choose that. And it wasn't an easy path. In fact, I got into this conversation in one of my ethics class because she was talking about generational poverty and how we all need to fix it. And I was like, so anyway, I was raised in generational poverty. And I can tell you that most of the time, it's just that someone else is supposed to fix their problem. So it's a lack of accountability. And she's like, well, but they can't get out. And I'm like, but I did. I bought a ticket. Even though my parents were stealing my money, I figured out how to get a plane ticket and I got out. And I could do that because I live in America. I was not limited. I don't know what it would be like in other countries. I, I know in my country, I was free to leave. And I'm free to set those boundaries. I can defend myself. I do have a father who I have no doubt would kill me, but I'm not afraid because I can carry and defend myself. He doesn't get that freedom over me. I love that my husband is part of the military and that what they do helps other countries what my daughter does she's in the national guard what she does you know she was standing on the nashville capitol steps in june of 2020 protecting that building and as a mother i did not sleep that night i think i slept better when ray was deployed than i did with having my daughter defending the capitol against riots and she's having glass bottles and Molotov, whatever those fiery things are, and bricks and frozen water bottles thrown at her. But I'm proud that my family wants to defend something. I am proud that my family is willing. You know, when they sign that line, they say that they now answer to that. My husband works for the government. If they call him, they get him. It doesn't matter what's happening in our life. And I admire that sacrifice. There are parents like Kim and so many other families. They've given the greatest sacrifice. Yeah, I had a crappy childhood, but I admire what they've done. They've given something that doesn't come back in the name of freedom, in the name of patriotism, when these young men and young women sign that line, they give up something. They say they're willing to give it up. And I, I stand in awe of that. Why is it important to teach your children about the greatness of America? Well, because it's America, but I guess that's overgeneralized. I agree with you. So on July 4th, we did a gratitude. We do daily gratitude in our home. And I, this year was like, you know what? My kids are big enough. We're going to do daily gratitude on July 4th. And we went around and said what we are grateful for. And my things that I teach my children that I'm grateful for about America is one freedom of religion. I am able to worship freely. I am not imprisoned for what I believe. And along with that, I have freedom to speak. My husband defends that freedom for everyone. 
and my daughter went to France a few years ago. They do not have that freedom. They cannot post on social media what they hate about their country. Most countries can't. You will be prosecuted. In America, we get to talk about how much we hate whoever we hate freely. And we can use some very colorful language and people do it. I do not believe people understand exactly what it means to have the freedom to say what you're thinking publicly without fear of repercussions. And third, I am free to defend myself. As a woman who has been stalked, as a young woman, you know, being stalked, I did not understand that. I wish someone would have ever have told me, you can defend yourself. You do not have to live in fear of threat of your own life. It is a very powerful thing for us individually and collectively to know that we can defend our homes. What is the Utah Kids Patriot Club or Patriot Camp, excuse me, the Utah Kids Patriot Camp? So it is a camp where we indoctrinate kids about how awesome American is. (laughs) (laughs) I love that indoctrinate. Um, so the camp was founded by, um, Julie Knudsen and a woman named Amy. Amy passed away this year with the Rona. They started this camp about 10 years ago, just to teach kids about America. Um, my kids have done the camp for a few years. And then this year, Julie asked me to be a part of it. And I was like, absolutely. It's a five-day camp where the kids come and they get classes on anything from like this year we had john hawkins our state representative come and teach the kids his goal was to help the kids understand that their voice they have a voice even as a child right within their own community within their own school and then officer ruiz from pleasant grove police department came and he talked about law enforcement and standards of protocol and basically you know from the perspective of law enforcement what they're actually trying to achieve, that they're not trying to take things from us, but they uphold the law locally. We had Julia Carlson come uh, and talk about her experience there in Afghanistan. We also like have the printing press that comes. One of our high school teachers here at Pleasant Grove, Brian Newman came and talked about the Declaration of Independence as his favorite document. Um, Working on next year, The theme is in God we trust because we want to talk about the miracles that were foundational to the building of our country. Where do people find out more information about this? We have a website and I don't remember its actual name, but I know if you googly smoogly it, Utah Patriot Kids Camp. Um, In fact, that might just be the website, but you can go there. Registration is in May. And this year, we're going to have a bigger camp. That sounds absolutely amazing. Andrea, what does America mean to you? The land of opportunity. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. It was absolutely fantastic, as I knew it would be. Thank you for this opportunity. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We the People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 